let me start with a kind of general position, which is by quoting that well-known figure, but maybe not well-known as an art historian, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, George Bush's Secretary of State, who famously said, well, there are the known knowns, the things we know we know, there are the known unknowns, the things that we know we don't know, and then there are the unknown unknowns, that is, the things that we don't even know that we don't know them. And he probably didn't invent it, but I think there's some interesting uh, parallels. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of mental framework that you can apply to all things. So um, I think we want to start at the beginning by thinking that the painting of Ming Dynasty China, that is the China from 1368 to 1644, is a topic that we know a lot about. We know a lot about it because um, we have a lot of the actual painting surviving from the Ming period, and we've got lots of writing about painting from the Ming period. It's a well-documented era of Chinese history. Um, then there are kind of quite a lot of things that we know we don't know, um, or we only have kind of tiny tips of the iceberg. So, for example, let me just take one example. Um, we don't know anything as much as we might like to know about the economic aspects of Ming painting, like how much did a painting cost? If you went to a professional artist and wanted a picture, how much did it cost? Uh, we know that pictures that were professional artists, that you could go and commission things, uh, we have some of those things, but we don't know how, we don't exactly know the prices of them. And this is in contrast, if you like, to what we know about European painting um, at the same time, where um, because of the kind of notarial system that particularly Italians used in the 15th and 16th century, we've got lots of contracts, right? We don't have a single uh, Ming Dynasty contract. On the other hand, we've got other kinds of things from Ming Dynasty China that we don't have from um, 15th and 16th century Europe. We've got large amounts of personal correspondence by artists, and we've got large amounts of writing by artists that vastly out to dwarf anything that, that exists from Europe at the same period. So that kind of, how much did a picture cost? That would be in my kind of Rumsfeldian um, known unknown. That is a topic we know we don't know very much about. But then there are the question of the kind of the unknown unknowns. Um, and that might be a theme that runs through this, that we might kind of begin to grope towards some of the things that we think, okay, we're only just beginning to realise that this is a topic um, that we don't know very much about. Now, the main period, 1368 to 1644 um, in Chinese history, I think one of the reasons that one can do this, of course, there's plenty of painting that survives from prior to the Ming period, and I'm just showing you two more or less randomly chosen but very wonderful pre-Ming paintings. So we have actual painting uh, from the Ming period, but we have it in very much smaller quantities, um, and we only have certain kinds of it. I think one of the things that makes it feasible to do um, a series on painting and culture in the main period, um, as opposed to, say, painting and culture in the Tang period, or painting and the culture in the Sung period. You could do it, but um, the, the quantity of surviving evidence is very much less and, and very much more limited. Uh, we, we, uh, here, let me just make another kind of general point about the survival of material evidence from the past, because that's what we're dealing with here. We're not just I, I suppose this applies to textual evidence as well, but I think you know, I'm, I'm, I'm applying it here to material evidence, which is that let's take as a basic premise that most of what was done in the past is lost. Right? That actually what we have is a very small percentage of what was done in the past. But it's not an equal percentage. That is, we don't simply have 5% of everything that was done in the past. We might have 
10 or 15 or maybe 20% of certain kinds of things that were done, and we might have 1 or 0.5 or even more scarily 0% of certain other kinds of things. So when I say painting survives in relatively large quantities from the Ming period, I want to lay down right at the beginning that I don't think that we've got you know, 5% of the Ming painting. We might have, you know, 7 or 8% of certain kinds of things, and we might have 0.1 or even 0% of certain other kinds of things. And one of the things I'll be doing in this series is drawing attention to, if you like, rare survivals where, uh, you know, we might have one surviving example of something that may once have existed in very lar much larger numbers. Larger numbers than the things which survive now in bigger numbers. So survival today is not a sound <coughs> basis on which to judge quantity or importance or presence within the culture at the past. And that's a very important kind of basic <coughs> premise. So we don't have an equal survival of everything even from the Ming period. And let me just give you uh, one example of where I think the, the unequal survival comes. The Ming Empire was a big place. Right? It had a population of about 150 million in the 16th century, uh, similar to the population of the whole of Europe at the same time. It's geographically very large, from north to south. It took you about as long to get from Beijing to Guangzhou down in the south as it would take you in the 16th century to get from Vienna to London or crack off to London. So, you know, it's a, it's a very, very big place. But I would say that the evidence that survives, or it's not just the evidence that survives, but the evidence that history and art history has most um, intensively drawn on is geographically skewed. It's skewed towards one area of the Ming Empire, and that's the region known in Chinese as Jiangnan, which means the region south of the Yangtze, and which in Ming Dynasty terms meant not everything south of the Yangtze River, but this area here shown in my, in my blow-up, and here it is, um, you know, blown up again. Um, this area um, at the mouth, really, the Yangtze Delta is, is one way of thinking of it. This area was economically the most developed in the empire, was the most heavily populated, um, it was the most heavily urbanized, it was the most heavily commercialized, and it's the site of many of the major cities that are going to come up as names um, in the uh, subsequent lectures. But as I said, the Ming Empire is a big place, and there's been a you know, considerable concentration um, of scholarly attention on this area. And one of the things that we need to think about is, well, what's happening, what's happening in the rest of this very large space? And are the um, generalizations about Ming painting that one might make, are they really generalizations which apply across this large uh, imperial space, or are they distinctive to this highly commercialized, highly urbanized area? Um, at the mouth um, of the Yangtze. So that's just one example of the way in which um, our study of the period is kind of is kind of skewed. Now, let me just offer a brief kind of justification for, for kind of studying painting as a topic. This is not something I'm reading back into the period. Painting, if you like, is a topic that people in the Ming Dynasty would have recognised themselves as, as a theme, a topic, um, a suitable object for study, um, a discourse, if you like. The Chinese word that I'm using is hua, painting. Um, it uh, forms part of a number of compounds in Chinese. One of the most important that it forms is the compound shu hua, calligraphy and painting. And let me just mark our cards that it's important, the order there is important because if you like, in terms of a hierarchy of esteem of which kinds of cultural practice are more important, calligraphy is more important than painting. You don't have to be a painter to be an educated person in the Ming period. You don't even have to be interested in painting at all 
But if your calligraphy, your handwriting, your production of script with the, with the writing brush is deficient, that's a black mark against you and certainly against your claims to be a person of culture or status or, or, or dignity. In the moon, they would have used the term huatan, which means something like the field of painting, in the sense that, you know, I'm using that in the sense of Bourdieu's term, a field of cultural production. Huatan means kind of every painting and everything to do with it, and is a term that would encompass the actual making of painting, the trading in painting, writing about painting, discussing painting. So the term Huatan is, if you like, the Ming term for what I'm calling painting and culture in, uh, in Ming China. It's a term which is modelled on an even older term, Shoukan, the field of poetry. That is, everything to do poetry and everything to do with it. And the fact that the poetry term comes earlier, I think, again, reflects the fact that in terms of a hierarchy of cultural practices within the main period, poetry is more important than painting as well. I.e., you, you have to have an interest in poetry, a knowledge of poetry, in order to count as, as an educated person. Now here's a quote um, that I've used in books and that people have drawn attention to, which possibly helps us to understand some of how people, how, some of how some people thought about painting in uh, the main period. This is a quote from a writer called Gunsiena, himself a painter, born in the late main period and living through the transition between the Ming and Qing periods, which took place um, in the 1640s. He said, in ancient times there were pictures, and he uses the word too, but no paintings. What? Pictures depict objects, portray people, or transcribe events. As for paintings, the same isn't necessarily true for them. One uses a good brush and antique ink and executes it on a piece of old paper. As for the things in a painting, they are cloudy hills and misty groves, precipitous boulders and cold waterfalls, plank bridges and rustic houses. There may be figures or no figures. To insist on some specific subject or the representation of some event is very low class. Right? Now, um, this distinction, if you like, between pictures, which kind of depict stuff, and painting, which is about, uh, if you like, the, the expression of the artist, but not about depicting an outside world, and the idea that the distinction between these is a kind of class distinction is one that has been made quite a lot of um, in the literature, in the secondary literature, the contemporary secondary literature um, on Chinese painting. Not least by me, you know, I mean, in a, in a book. Um, but one rethinks things, and one of the things I'm kind of currently rethinking um, is the extent to which um, this is a safe guide to the practice of the period. This distinction between pictures and paintings is vocalised, if you like, here in the 17th century. But is it safe to assume that it goes um, a whole lot further back? I suppose the kind of things that he might use by two is, let us just remind ourselves that there are all sorts of pictures in the Ming period that are definitely not paintings. So this porcelain vase from the 16th century definitely has a picture on it, but that's not a painting. This printed book um, has a, a, a picture in it, a woodwork illustration, um, but that's not, that's not a, a painting um, either. You could say um, that this is, in his terms, in Gongxian's terms in the 17th century, that this 15th century picture is a picture and not a painting. It's an anonymous work showing palace women and children celebrating the new year. It's highly coloured, although very heavily faded. It's a figure subject, and it's definitely, if we go back to him, you know, the representation of some specific event. It shows women and children, if you like, <coughs> decorating the house for, for the new year festival. So arguably, we would say that in Gung Xian's terms, this is a picture uh, and not a painting. Anonymous, specific subject, figure painting. It's, it's of lower class. And I think the fact that it's, I'll come back to some of the gender issues of something like this in, in subsequent lectures, 
but the relationship of kind of lower class and, and gendered female in this kind of theorizing around painting and pictures is something that, that we, need to, we need to kind of be constantly aware of. But on the other hand, is this, is this absolutely, this distinction between pictures and painting that is vocalized uh, in the 17th century, is it necessarily readable back what might well be 200, year, 200 years earlier? Um, and I just think one clue is, one of the things that women are doing here, um, this uh, detail, shows a woman pasting up a picture. It's quite possibly a printed picture, Rather than uh, rather than something done by hand, and it's a kind of um, one of the things you do at New Year is put up particular kinds of pictures of particular gods who defend the household against uh, <coughs> sort of dangerous and noxious elements that might be around in the cosmos as the as the year turns and the and the cycle the cosmic cycle kind of moves from from one year into another. But these things are always called, even when they're printed, they're called nian hua, New Year paintings, or New Year pictures. And I think the use of that term should just um, remind us for a second that, that this distinction between picture and painting may not be as firm, as definite, as safe, as the polemical position of Gongxian uh, put out in the in the 17th century is, so maybe the category is a bit more fuzzy at the edges uh, than some of the literature, including some of the literature by me, uh, makes it sound. It's worth remembering that even for the elite, painting is a practice in among other practices. It kind of fits in with other things. It's not in a completely separate place by itself. And I'm showing you here a set of four uh, paintings. They're all the same size in reality. I've just blown one of them up a bit bigger. Um, four paintings from about 1500, showing what are often referred to as the four, the four gentlemanly pursuits or the four pastimes of of the educated male member of the elite. Qin qi shu hua, zither, play playing the zither, the fu qin, which is kind of musical instrument that elite male play. <coughs> Um, playing chess, um, calligraphy, and painting. Right? So here's calligraphy and painting. I'm drawing attention right at the beginning to something which is kind of, if you like, slightly distinctive about this. The, the pictorial representation of, of these four pastimes chin, a, a gentleman playing the zip, <coughs> chess, gentleman playing chess, calligraphy, gentleman executing calligraphy, painting, a gentleman looking at a painting. Right? He's not doing a painting, he's not actually painting, he's looking at a painting. And it's the only one of the four which is about, if you like, observing the activity rather than, rather than carrying out the activity. Does this tell us something um, about the kind of position of painting within the total realm of elite culture? That's something um, that we'll kind of come back to. Now, um, I just want to, at the, in this very first lecture, run through, this may be very, very familiar to some of you, but run through kind of some of the, what you might call, formal aspects of Ming painting. What are these objects, these things um, that we're kind of dealing with? Um, let me use this um, as a starting point, um, and I'll just point out, for those of you actually taking the special subject, here's a reminder that if the background of my slide is this eye-popping shade of yellow, that means that we're looking at one of the prescribed images within the, if you like, the, there's a set body of images that the students taking this course are kind of required to be familiar. So that's why the, the background of my slides changes from a restful pale blue to an eye-popping yellow um, at certain points. Let's start with this picture dated 1437. It's a detail of a much of a much larger picture, a point which I'll return. But it shows again gentlemen looking at a Yeti picture. Um, the painting that they're looking at is in the format of a hanging scroll. That is, it is uh, longer than it is wide. It's been held up here by a servant, and this gentleman who's studying it is is holding it in his hands. 
There are quite a lot of pictures of gentlemen looking at pictures, and I'll, I'll certainly mention them again um, as we go along. But it's kind of interesting in that it also gives us a, um, uh, a sense of, of some of the other formal aspects, which is how, if you like, pictures are, are produced. Um, just to remind ourselves, the two principal surfaces on which Chinese painting is done are, are silk and paper. All the things that we'll be looking at are either painted on silk um, or they're painted on paper. Um, they're painted with a brush, um, a brush which is essentially the same um, in its construction as the brush which is used in writing for the production of the, the characters of the Chinese language. Um, and all of the colors uh, that, that are used, there's a wide range of colors. Some of them are mineral colors, some of them are vegetable colors, but it's all, they're all in a water-based medium. So essentially everything we're looking at is a watercolour. Um, it's therefore susceptible to fading, and therefore one of the things we just have to bear in mind is that almost every main picture is not as bright as it was um, when it was first painted. This picture not only shows a gentleman looking at, but here are, if you like, the tools of the trade. Uh, this gentleman here has a brush in his hand. He's poised to write something on a sheet of paper, probably a, a comment or to record what these gentlemen the act of connoisseurship in which they're looking at this painting together. I think the other thing I'd just draw attention to in this one is that this is a social activity. This is not a solitary activity. The act of looking at these pictures is something that the gentlemen are doing together, and there's this kind of interaction uh, between them. So he's looking at a hanging scroll. And I think it's, oh, and here's another hanging scroll. Um, and that's the term that one uses in English for these. There are different terms in Chinese for the different formats of the paintings. Um, this tends to get called a hanging school in English. Um, it's just worth remembering that there's a great variability of size in hanging scrolls. Uh, the, um, the effect of, of the, the classroom effect is to flatten everything to the same scale. So things either... This, this one, in fact, is very much larger in reality than it appears on this, uh, on this slide. But some of the things that I'm showing you are very much smaller in reality and are, if you like, blown up. So there's quite a big variability in, in size. And remember that there's no technical reason for this. Um, paper in the Ming Dynasty, sheets could be joined together to make the surface for large holes. Silk, uh, silk could be... Uh, joined together um, in, in quite large, to make kind of quite large ones. So the reason why a scroll is big or small is not to do with technical aspects. It must be to do with the choice of the artist, the context for which it's made, etc., etc. There has to be a kind of a, a reason for this. Um, there's recently been a kind of interesting argument which says that in general scrolls are getting smaller through history. That is, in the 10th, 11th century, by and large, hanging scrolls were very big, and, and they get smaller. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly suspicious of that, because what they're really saying is that most of the scrolls that survive from the earlier periods are big ones. Um, and that's, again, about the survival of evidence. Uh, we don't know, for example, that there may have been many smaller things in earlier periods. But it's certainly observable that in the Ming there's a considerable uh, variation in the size um, of a hanging scroll. And as we've seen, you know, if we go back to this one, a hanging scroll can hang on a wall, but just to mark a card here, that's not necessarily the only way in which it's going to be viewed. Uh, it's, it may well be, be viewed in this kind of context where a servant is holding it up uh, on a stick. Now, I haven't really got a lot of time to, to kind of uh, uh, go into these technical aspects, so I'm kind of whizzing through. Um, the other great format, the other major format used in the Ming period is what gets called in English the hand scroll or horizontal scroll, uh, and that's something that unrolls this way. Again, there's a variation in scale of length, although not so much variation in scale of size. The biggest hand scroll tends to be about that high, um, and the smallest one tends to be about that. So there's less variation that way. But of course the variation that way can be enormous. And some of them are 90 feet long. I mean, there are, there are some that are small like this. This one's pictorial surface about that size. But some of them can be 30, 40, 50 feet 
long. They can be they can be uh, they can be very big. Um, this photograph is an unusual photograph um, in terms of what you'll see in terms of Chinese painting in books because it shows you the whole physical object. What you tend to see in, in paintings in, in books is just, if you like, the pictorial surface. But it's worth remembering that a Chinese scroll, a hanging scroll, and a hand scroll are both physical, three dimensional objects. Um, they require manipulation, uh, they take up space. And uh, here, the hand scroll, this one's been unrolled, and then these wooden blocks that you see here hold down the, 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 the kind of the, the opening portion and the continued portion. And of course, there may be more here, and in this case, there is. There isn't more painting. There's a great deal more writing here in the form of colophons, subsequent comments, people who, comments by people who've seen this painting through history since it was painted in 1550, going on through the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. There's very little written about what you might call these, these physical aspects and the framing um, of, of Chinese painting. The, the only book really about mounting is one written oh, 60 years ago um, by Robert van Hulik. Um, and we'll come back to that uh, in, a subsequent, uh, in, in a subsequent lecture. But just to show you the kind of the importance of mounting, I'm showing you for comparison this. This is a famous and quite controversial picture in the uh, uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It's not of Ming date, so it won't feature very much again. If you go in the museum or you see it in the book, that's what you see. Right? It's a painting on silk, but that is what it looks like off its mounting, i.e. the silk, in this case, as in all hanging schools, is backed onto paper. And that paper backing is renewed at subsequent periods through history, many times. So actually, this is the pictorial surface. This is all that survives of it. Um, this is what it looks like in the conservation studio when it's removed from its, from its paper backing. Um, and it's, you know, it's not in great shape. It's supposed to be a thousand years old, so you know it's maybe got a reason for not being in great shape. But um, these physical aspects of mounting and framing and so on are, are 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 things that we won't have a great deal of time to to talk about, but that will feature in these lectures a little bit. Now, there's a problem with the hand scroll, which is um, that it doesn't fit on the page. Right? It doesn't fit on the page, um, and it doesn't fit on the um, uh, on the screen, uh, and I'm showing you uh, here. Are, here are so what normally tends to happen in books and lectures like this is that you get details. This is a detail um, of a hand scroll. It's not. A, it's not a picture. So if you like a detail taken out of a picture, and what I'm showing you here or here are these are these are single objects, right? So this is is not four pictures. It's one picture that goes one, two, three, four. But you can imagine that if you were to photograph it like that and, and, and put it all on one slide, what you would see would be a thin, dark line about that size. You know, Absolutely nothing would, would be visible. And that would be true in a book as well. Now, of course, it's very inconvenient of people in the Ming Dynasty to not take into consideration the needs of art history professors in the 21st century. It's extremely thoughtless of them. They should have, they should have paid more attention to what I want. Um, but it's an issue that, I think it's a genuine issue, that if you like, uh, it's easier uh, for, the, for the, 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 the literature to deal with um, images like, uh, works of art like this, which, which fit entirely into the screen, or that one, than it is to deal with things where you know what, you can't get the whole thing on the page, you can't get the whole thing on the screen. So that's another, if you like, um, formal aspect uh, that we kind of need to, to think about. So the hanging scroll, the hand scroll, these are, these are, if you like, two of the key formats of paintings in the Ming period, but they're by no means the, the only format. The only one that was, if you like, a novelty um, of the Ming period is, is fan painting, or, or more precisely, folding fans. 
painting. Uh, and it's a novelty of the Ming period because a folding fan was itself a novelty of the Ming period. We think of the folding fan as kind of quintessentially part of Chinese culture, um, but it's developed outside China, probably in Japan, possibly in Korea. There is still a certain amount of debate and, and argument about that. But there are certainly novelties in China and don't appear there before about the 15th century. And just incidentally, that's, an, I think, an interesting reminder about what you might call Ming China's porosity and openness to the outside world. Some of the older historical literature about the Ming Dynasty, written during the Cold War and very much under the influence of a Cold War mentality, had this image of the Ming Dynasty kick the Mongols out of China and pull the shutters down, and they don't want anything to do um, with, the, uh, with the outside world. This is a fantasy. Um, and uh, if you like, the fact that something we now think of as quintessentially Chinese, the folding fan, comes into use in China from elsewhere in Asia in this period, and is immediately, or almost immediately, taken up as another surface on which painting can be carried out. Now, obviously, you will immediately twig that this is blown up very much bigger than it is in reality. It's in reality, it's going to be about that size. It's a folding, it's a folding fan. Um, and then we might want to think about kind of presence and absence. It's carried on the body, it's there, it's not there. So immediately we're starting to think about kind of viewing and contexts of viewing and who's viewing, who's viewing what, where. This fan is, um, is obviously it's missing the, the wooden sticks that would actually make it into a fan at some point in its history. The paper sheet, the folding paper sheet that forms the body of the fan has been taken off its wooden sticks, wooden or bamboo sticks, um, and mounted um, into, uh, into a book. And it therefore relates to another format um, of main painting, which we call the album leaf. And the album leaf is, uh, as the name suggests, a small painting which is going to be bound into a, into a book format. So again, something like this, in reality, is going to be very, very, very much uh, smaller. Than it, uh, than it looks. Um, in fact, these two pictures are the same size in reality. They're both about this size. Um, and uh, they both come from an album of paintings by the artist Chiu Ying. Um, this one, called uh, Examining Antiquities, um, is, is a painting of people looking at a painting in the context that you yourself would be looking at the painting. Right? So it's, it's an album leaf. It would have been mounted in a book. And what it shows is gentlemen looking at paintings in a book. You see these sort of kidney-shaped things here. These are going to be um, uh, fan paintings of an older kind. That is not a folding fan, but a sort of circular fan that had a stick on it uh, that had been in use for in China indigenously for um, some kind of hundreds of years. Just note again, this is a social event. It's another one of our pictures of people looking at pictures, um, but it's a social event. It's, it's gentlemen kind of getting together. So, hanging scroll, hand scroll, fan, fan closely related um, to album leaf. Um, all of these formats of painting that I've talked about up to now are mobile. They're extremely mobile. Um, and you can, you can see here sort of servants bringing up with others. Here's a this little boy here. He's got over his shoulder a bundle of hanging scrolls. That is, when they've finished looking at the album leaves, they're going to look at the hanging scrolls. But they, they may, these may be things that have been brought. Perhaps somebody has come, one of these gentlemen has come to visit another. He's brought three highlights of his collection for them to enjoy together. Pictures are extremely mobile. Um, or rather, uh, some pictures are extremely mobile, and those formats, which I've discussed up to now, which are extremely mobile, are the ones that, that survive um, best. There are other formats of painting in the main, um, and one of those is, if you like, the screen painting. Let me come back to my set of the four uh, gentlemanly accomplishments. This is painting, and this one's calligraphy. And you'll notice that as well as the painting, that, uh, that he's looking at. 
there is behind him, in both of these cases, a large um, wooden frame, a large standing screen, um, a large wooden frame, and within this frame there is a painting. Uh, in, this, in this case, a landscape painting, you see trees and mountains in the distance. This is a scene, I don't know how well it shows up from where you're sitting. I think we should move all of these chairs kind of 10 feet this way, possibly, for, this, for these lectures. Uh, this is a scene of waves. It shows kind of turbulent, turbulent waves. Now, not, we have plenty of evidence from the Megan period that, uh, for these kinds of screens, they, they appear in pictures all the time. We actually do have, wouldn't like to say, but not more than one or two, there might be three, um, of these wooden surviving frames. Right? But we don't have a single surviving painting in a frame, in a screen frame like this from the Ming period. Not one, not one, zero, zero. Right? So that's one of my cases where the stuff we know existed, it doesn't mean that we've got very little of it, we've got none of it, absolutely none of it. Um, we do have certain pictures which from their, um, from their uh, proportions, and note the proportions, and it's more like a European, if you like, land, what we call landscape, on your computer would be called landscape format. Um, uh, we have some pictures that are that scale and that size, and which we think might probably once have been screen panels, but uh, they're all now mounted as hanging scrolls. Right? There's no, there's no surviving one like this. And then the same is true on what you might call um, the the most uh, sort of uh, what had once been uh, one of the most. Uh, oops, I'll just show you that. Um, so there's the hanging scroll and there's the screen painting for comparison. And then there's the issue of wall painting. Now, if you go back into Chinese history um, and uh, read texts from the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th century, it's quite clear that some of the most prestigious and important artists of those early periods, some of the most important things they did were wall painting. Uh, which might be in palaces, palaces of the imperial family, palaces of the rich, um, but also in temples. And in the main period, people still thought that some of these pictures survived. That is, people described seeing things on walls that they thought were by important early artists of the past. We also know that uh, in a couple of contexts, significant artists of the Ming period were involved in wall painting, but none of that survives at all. None of that survives at all. What I'm showing you are the Jinsa is the shrine of the Jin at Taiyuan in Shanxi province, and I'm here well outside the Jiangnan urbanized core. Um, this is a very important early building. It's an 11th century building. It's one of the most important surviving pieces of uh, 11th century wood architecture in China. And in the early 16th century, we know that it was decorated on the outside. So you see what I mean? These, these panels are these panels here. So basically, you come up to the front of the building and there are these panels, which would have been, um, I think, eye-poppingly colourful themselves uh, when, they were, uh, when they were first painted in the early 16th century, but which are now extremely faded. But I show you this just to say that, you know, there is painting on walls in the main period. It's all done, all of it which survives is religious, right? There's no secular wall painting surviving from the main period. The only surviving wall painting is, uh, is um, in, in the context of religious buildings. It's all of it done by anonymous craftsmen, artisan painters. It's all in Gongxian's terms too and not hua, picture and not painting, and it's all rather lower class, although we'll kind of investigate that as we go on. Now, I suppose one thing I'd just like to kind of take on board at the beginning, and forgive me if this seems kind of patronising, but when I've taught courses about Ming painting before, 
One of the kind of unspoken fears that people sometimes have, which I think it's better to get out on the table at the beginning, is, isn't it all going to look the same? Isn't it all going to look the same? There's going to be a mountain and some trees and a little guy and, you know, oh, what, do you, what do you do with that? Well, um, I could kind of say, well, there are an awful lot of Madonnas in European art, but that's never, that's never stopped anybody, uh, anybody from talking about them. Um, but I hope to demonstrate that uh, while there are certain, just as there are certain recurrent themes in European painting that come back again and again, there are certain recurrent themes in Chinese painting, most principally landscape, which comes back again and again. But I hope I can demonstrate that there's a range of other things going on. Um, I don't think you would need to have taken a lot of art history to say that this picture doesn't look very like this picture. Uh, you know, here we have something which is highly coloured, which is figure eight, which is figure painting. Um, interestingly, just note, we'll see this picture again. It's actually a rare picture of somebody making a painting. He's actually painting this, this lady's portrait, and we'll come, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, it doesn't look, um, it doesn't look uh, at all like this. One of the things that uh, I think is striking about the Ming, and also, uh, you know, as I said, we've got a wider range of evidence, is that we have um, a great range, if you like, of uh, different kinds of makers of painting. So, for example, we've got pictures by emperors, right? We've got pictures by an early 15th century emperor. We don't have any Europeans. We don't have Queen Elizabeth I, Charles V, Henry, Henry V, who's a kind of contemporary of this guy. They're not famous for, for the production of painting, but many emperors, or at least some of them, uh, were significant artists in their own right. We've got work by, by courtesans, by professional uh, female um, entertainers. We've got work by uh, female members of the elite, female uh, uh, members of the, of the upper classes. We've got work by religious professionals, uh, monks, uh, both Taoist uh, and Buddhist monks. Uh, we've got work by what loosely one might call professional artists. And I just draw the attention to the fact that these these two works, both by professional artists, but professional artist is a term that covers a very wide span. This guy, we know the name, we know the biography, we know we have dates, we kind of have a sense of This is, if you like, a completely anonymous work um, produced again in a context of religious devotion. So a term like professional painter um, carries a whole very, very wide span, and we'll be picking apart as we go on some of exactly what, what does that mean. Uh, we have paintings by uh, high members of the imperial bureaucracy, who were also wealthy landowners, um, and we have paintings by uh, wealthy landowners who were not successful members uh, of the imperial bureaucracy, but hence um, had, uh, but still had considerable social and economic and cultural status within, within the period. One of the things I hope to convince you over these eight weeks is that main painting doesn't all look the same. Uh, this, if you like, highly detailed uh, rendering of the urban scene in which you can zoom in and look at the kinds of goods being sold on the streets of a great city is not the same kind of painting as this painting, uh, of uh, this landscape painting, not of a specific place, very much linked to the practice of poetry, uh, very much kind of working together with the texts that are written on it. These just aren't the same kinds of paintings. Um, here's a, a difficult looking chart, right? Um, and I don't want to, I just want to kind of finish by this, really the message I want you to take away from this is just like painting was done by lots of people, painting played lots of different roles in the main period. It's not one kind of thing. This is um, a chart by the anthropologist, the late Alfred Gell, from his book Art and Agency, in which he tries to make a sort of system of thinking about um, uh, what pictures do. 
And he deals in four terms. The artist, which is kind of easy, we can understand that. The index, which is his technical term, I won't go into why, for the work of art, right? So the painting is the index in terms of us. Prototype being the thing out there in the world to which the painting relates, uh, i.e., broadly speaking, the subject matter, and recipient, the, the viewer. Um, I just want to kind of quiz through uh, three examples to show you, you know, that maybe this is a, a kind of helpful, or, or at least it gives us a way of thinking about the variety. Here's a picture we've looked at before, Shunjo's poet on a mountaintop. Very important artist, very highly regarded in his day. But I think one of the things that's happening in this painting is what you might call what's happening in this course. Material inherently dictates to artists the form it assumes. Um, now this is what you might call the modernist idea of truth to materials, i.e. plastic should look like the plastic chairs you're sitting on should look like plastic chairs, not facsimiles of, of wooden chairs. The importance of ink, one of the things is that this, this foregrounds the fact this is a, a deliberately extremely monochrome, monochrome picture, um, and it's very much about telling you that this is ink on a surface. This is, this is ink on a surface. It's not, it's not, a, 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 it's, not it's definitely not Gonsien's lower class painting. It's not a depiction of some specific event. It's, the, it's, it's, a, it's, it's as much about ink, the material, as it is about uh, the poet uh, on a mountaintop. So that's one aspect, um, one of Gell's sort of uh, possibilities. Here's a quote from uh, the um, uh, very early Ming uh, writer Wang Lu, um, who, who climbed a great sacred mountain, Mount Hua, in northern China, and, and produced a series of paintings of it. I kept my paintings at home, and once someone by chance saw them, he thought they were contrary to all painting styles, and with surprise asked, who's your master? That's the kind of thing you would ask somebody in the main period. Who taught you this? Where did you get this from? Who, who, who was your master? I replied, I take my heart-mind, and that's a rather sort of um, arch translation of the Chinese term scene, but in China, the, the kind of the, there's, there's not a separation that you get in Cartesian thought between a seat of the rational functions and the emotion, you know, in, in, in early modern Europe, the kind of the emotions are here and the rational bit is here, but uh, Chinese understandings, early modern Chinese understandings of the body don't, don't make that decision, that distinction, which is why people often use this translation. So I take my heart, mind to be my teacher, right? So I learn from kind of what's in me. It takes as its master my eyes, which in turn revere Mount Hua as their teacher. Right? So in a sense, you've got this. What made the painting? The mountain taught the eyes, the eyes taught the heart-mind, the heart-mind taught the hand to produce the painting. So in a sense, the painting made it. Made the, the, the mountain made the painting, i.e. prototype as cause of index. That is, the, the mountain causes the picture. It's got agency in, in some sort of way. Now, Wang Lu uh, was a doctor, and uh, just to kind of, uh, he, he wrote on medicine as well, to veer into the medical for a moment, here are two woodblock pictures, definitely two, not one, from um, uh, uh, a mid-15th century edition of a text called Orthodox Essentials of Eating and Drinking. Orthodox Essentials of Eating and Drinking, the text that had originally been written uh, back in the 14th century in the Yuan Dynasty. Um, but this, if you like, gives us a, an insight into, into what painting can do, which is very different from what you might call art history or, or, or any notion of aesthetics and so on. Um, because this is the painting as therapeutic object. And just to put it very kind of briefly, uh, and some of you may well be aware, Chinese understandings of the body at this period um, are about a set of five phases, but they're also about the balance in the body between yin and yang, between the kind of cold, wet principle of yin and the hot, dry principle of yang. 
And, and one of the things which this book, which is about, it's, it's about food and medicine, because again, Ming Chinese doesn't make a distinction between the categories food and medicine. Stuff you, stuff you take in that keeps you in balance, that keeps you healthy. Well, one of the things you can do to keep you healthy is, if you've got too much yin in your body, you can look at a painting of something that's got a lot of yang. Right? And that's what's happening here. These people are not kind of engaging in some sort of aesthetic uh, uh, experience. They are rebalancing the yin and yang in their body by looking at paintings. That is, the paintings are actually doing stuff to them. And that's what Gell would have called index source of power over recipient. Recipient is spectator, submits to index. I.e., the paintings are doing things. They're actually doing things to the, to the uh, people. And here, this lady is looking at... Um, uh, she's looking at... Uh, there's, a, there's a phoenix, a bird here. And then these are sort of shrimps and crayfish, lobster kind of things, lobsters and crayfish, and so on, which are going to be very yin because they're wet and they live in the mud and so on. Um, and therefore, she's balancing the, uh, the uh, effects um, of her body. Um, she's balancing the, uh, the uh, principles um, of yin and yang uh, in her body. Um, now, we can see this. Uh, we might say, well, this is very kind of, um, uh, this is very different from what one might think about. But I just, I just think it's probably unwise for art historians to kind of completely forget about this rule of painting as well. Um, we notice that one of the paintings that she's looking at here, I mean, it's a painting of animals, so, but the, but the, the animals kind of, and there's somebody hunting them, I think this is, a, this is a, a hunting scene. But it makes one think that is, that, is that sort of sense of a painting as doing something to the viewer, is that completely absent when uh, one looks at a wider range of paintings that, that people looked at. I think it would be very unwise of the art historian to kind of say, this has got nothing to do with us, this is something completely different. I think if we want to think, take seriously the notion of painting and culture in the main period, we're going to have to take the widest possible framework for understanding how paintings were made, how paintings were viewed, and what, painting, what people thought paintings were for, and that's what I'm aiming to do um, for the next seven weeks. So thank you very much for your attention today.